Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we take you behind the scenes and into the shoes of producers across all corners of the entertainment industry. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, thank you so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you don't already, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you like the show, tell a friend, tag a friend, help spread the word so we can keep growing this incredible community. This intro recording is coming to you live from my mother-in-law's bedroom floor down here in Southern California as we gear up for our 4th of July holiday. If you are in the U.S. and you celebrate, I hope you had a wonderful time, a wonderful and safe time. Things get kind of cray over here and that you're gearing up for a really fun three business days before we find out next week what will happen with the Screen Actors Guild. Will the members strike after the extension of July 12th, which is next Wednesday? While the timing, of course, isn't the best, one could argue that it's really never a good time to fight for your rights and protect the rights that you have and ask for the things that you deserve and, you know, be able to sustain your livelihood in this industry. So standing here in solidarity with WGA and SAG, I'm really, really curious to see what happens. Really apropos, actually, that this week on the show, we will hear from the inspiring writer-producer Gabby Lugo. Gabby and I actually met at a networking event for our Latino community, and we were quickly magnetized to each other. If you've attended these events, you know they sometimes can be alienating. The conversations can be very surface level, and it's hard to actually make a connection with people, which is why I always harp on this idea that you're going to get much more out of these social environments if you just foster an organic connection with someone versus just trying to swap business cards. And this is exactly what happened with Gabby and I. We bonded over the various parallels in our path and I simply had to share her story with you. After finding major success as a line producer on projects like the original short for Damien Chazelle's film Whiplash and the anomaly hit that was the feature film Palm Springs, she was faced with making a decision that would have most creatives shaking in their boots. Should she continue on the lucrative line producing path or turn down her financial safety net and pursue her true passion for writing? In this episode, you'll get the real reel on how Gabby navigated the high stress and high stakes of a journey that begins with immigration from Nicaragua and arrives to present day with the recently sold reboot of Sixteen Candles, alongside powerhouse Latinas, showrunner Tanya Saracho, and the one and only Selena Gomez. Spoiler alert, Gabby is writing it. I'm delighted to share a bit of her wisdom with you. So without further ado, here's Gabby. How, how's everything going? How are you? Okay. You know, it's, uh, some days are great and you feel like a lot of camaraderie on the picket lines and it's exciting. And, you know, other days are really hard because you realize that people can't pay their rent or their mortgages, or they're like really struggling and need grocery cards to get by. So it's every day is different, but it's tough. I hear that. That is real. It's like very necessary, but it comes at such a great expense, you know, this fight to so many people's livelihood and like their, yeah, just like their livelihood and everything that is a part of that. So it's, it's wild. I'm really excited to have you on. It's been something I've been thinking about for a while, actually, because I think you have such a unique perspective. Like I've never met anyone like you. I know there's more of you out there, people who started off like in sort of a really specific side of the business and then were able to pivot into really ultimately what they wanted to be doing. And it's it's why I wanted to invite you on because I think you bring a really unique and fresh and needed perspective on, you know, what's possible when you have a dream and you make it your mission to pursue that dream and not let the industry put you in the corner where they want you to be. So I'm excited to dig in and just learn more about you in this conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Oh my goodness, my pleasure. I'm I'm so grateful to be here too. Yeah, so I'd love to just start at the beginning of how how well, but even before you discovered this business and whatever it was that like the the kernel of that got you addicted to storytelling, being the daughter of a single mom who was formerly undocumented, having that experience. Tell us about that and how that informed who you ended up becoming. Yeah, you know, I think 
people who are uh, children of immigrants can probably relate. But, you know, my mom came here through a lot of sort of trials and tribulations. She couldn't just pick up and leave where she was. I know a lot of people here like can't fathom that, but she literally had to... um, in Nicaragua, there was a, a law that said that like you're you couldn't leave the country without your father's permission. And I uh, did not have a relationship with my father. So it was really difficult to sort of like track him down and figure out where he was. And so she eventually had to like lie and say that I had this terrible heart condition and to get papers, to get doctors to sign off on this thing so that I travel with other people to concoct this whole story. Uh, and get people to like validate it so that this man would agree to meet with us, sign these papers and like, let me get on a plane to come to the United States uh, for medical reasons, right? On a visa that expires. How old were you? I was like four and a half. Okay. So five. Uh, In the meantime, she had to uh, make the trek up through Mexico and cross the river and, you know, have the experience that a lot of undocumented people have, which is like to make very quick friends with whoever's around you and try to uh, help each other get through this like very uncertain time. And uh, when she arrived, you know, it was a really different time in the 80s. And very quickly, she sort of like turned herself in and said, like, I'm here to seek asylum and went through that process and had a, a difficult time, but a path, you know, to sort of get to it. And she yeah. eventually started studying and, um, you know, had like three jobs. She worked at 7-Eleven and uh, you know, really was getting by. And And it took me a little longer to f- have my paperwork sort of figured out. So I became undocumented after and she sorted out her paperwork a little faster because she's a, an adult and, you know, sort of like the responsible person and then sort of got to me after that. But I, even as a child, remember very quickly thinking, wow, people treat my mom really differently than me because she speaks English with a really heavy accent and I speak English like this. Mm. And I remember being aware as like a six-year-old, you know, that that I better figure out the right story about myself. And I used to lie and tell people that I was from Spain and that I was like, you know, like fancy Spaniard uh, and that I didn't speak Spanish, which I totally did, which was my first language. And sort of had this ability to (laughs) tell people a story about myself that felt a little fancier so that I would fit in a little bit more. And my mom, being an immigrant, you know, really started uh, making sure that I looked the part too. So we would like iron my hair on an ironing board and bleach my hair and make sure that I had like, you know, my that my arm hair was bleached and that I looked like everybody else and sounded like everybody else. And so I, I think I understood intuitively the power of storytelling from a very young age, uh, because that's what it would allow me to survive in the world. How did that at that time impact your identity? I mean, you're still figuring out who you are, and you're playing a character, <laughs> you know, yeah. of yourself at such a young age when it's it's your, you obviously it's still so fragile. Like, how did that evolve? There's a lot of self loathing that happens, you know, things that I'm still trying yeah. to like, work through, especially now that I have my own kids. But at the the time, I think, you know, sort of very much intuitively understood that uh, the narrative that surrounds you is um, something that will allow you other people to accept you. That can be a very powerful tool for uh, becoming a part of a group or being separate from a group and really made me curious about that. But like any good immigrant, I also knew that my mom had risked a lot. And I don't think could even fathom all that it was until many years later, but that she was doing a lot to be here and that I better make something of myself. And I think that now people our age are starting to understand that there is a danger in having your self-worth wrapped up in your productivity. Mm. But at the time, my mom's like lesson was you have to work twice as hard as any anybody else keep your head down do not like make waves and assimilate and i cannot begrudge her that assimilation because for her that was survival right but for right. me as a 40 plus year old woman that has become a lot to contend with but it really made me interested in storytelling and it wasn't a, but i didn't think it was a viable path for me because i had to be productive i had to like 
I didn't know anybody that made money in the arts. And so I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And that's what I thought my path was going to be until it wasn't. So you guys came to where in the States when you came and why that place? Did you have family or connective tissue here? We came to Texas. We went to College Station, which is uh, where Texas A&M is. And really because we had had other family successfully make the trek from Nicaragua here, there was a war in 1979. And um, a lot of people had left. My mom at the time, you know, was um, had separated from her family. She was estranged from them. And so we uh, didn't come until a little bit later mm. in the early 80s. But um, uh, there's a great exodus of of people in Nicaragua around that time that all sort of came back around the 90s. Do you think a lot about now at this point in your life, this idea of like, I think about this, right? The nature versus nurture, like who would we be had our parents not left? Who would we have grown up to be had I stayed in Brazil, had you stayed in Nicaragua? Like, would we still have found stories in the same way? Would we still have had this passion in this way? Or how much of this hunger and desire, right, to work in a really volatile, competitive industry comes from this thing of like, when you're an immigrant and when you're the children of immigrants, which our children, your children are, my children will be, it's like there's just something in you that is fundamentally different. I think with how, how you have to pursue the goals, like you were saying, it's not even working twice as hard. There's almost like your life depends on it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like there's this pressure, like I, for me, I speak for myself, like no, my parents never put this pressure on me, but I somehow internalize this from an early age as well, where I knew instinctively that like, I saw my parents busting their ass and I knew I had to make something of myself. And that was never like failure was never an option. I was just going to have to go and succeed. And I find it really fascinating that I then chose a very hard industry instead of something that could have been an easier pathway to that. You know, it's almost like history repeating itself. My My parents chose a very hard path that had such a huge upside, but it was a huge risk, right? And similarly, we have chosen industries that kind of mirror that experience in a way. It's almost like we're drawn to it. And I'm just so curious, like, your thoughts on all of that. Yeah, I I do think that uh, the more that I sort of have been self-reflecting on, um, you know, who I am as an artist, I've realized that uh, I couldn't even say that word about myself until a couple of years ago. And uh, and even now, it's it's hard uh, to say it. And I I think it's because, again, I didn't know anybody that made money off of this profession. But once I discovered it, you're right, it was like the impossible mountain that I was like, well, I guess I'm going to climb that. And part of that is a personality thing. But another part of it, I think, is also uh, just coming to terms with who you are. And uh, so, so I think I like to think that no matter where I would have grown up, I would have eventually come to it. I don't know that I would have seen screenwriting as an opportunity. I think I would have maybe, you know, seen like uh, being an author or, you know, producing in some capacity that's always in me. But, you know, I don't know that I would have found the the screenwriting piece. But yeah, it is interesting that we pick these incredibly difficult spaces. I don't know if it's like a way to prove ourselves to ourselves that we are just as capable as our parents or if it is, um, you know, a way of finding your own identity in this, in this world. But, um, but but it's definitely a struggle. Yeah, I don't have a question for that an answer for that one. Rather, that's definitely like something I've contemplated a lot with my therapist, you know, of like, it's like, of like all, all our parents want, I would assume your mom is the same is for us to be happy. And to my dad always his famous line was follow your bliss, you know, and I think about the skill set that I possess and how I could have probably found bliss in a lot of different tangential things. And I think especially right now in a season where our industry is going through such a challenge and beyond the strike, I think it's it's existential almost, it feels like. I was talking to someone where it feels like a mini COVID all over again because it's making us have to really contend with what is the future of this business? The model is inherently broken. Even if you fix it with the unions, like 
where does that, where are we going with all of this, with the way art is now told and the lack of risk being taken and how we even uplift stories and forget even having the conversation of diverse stories or Latina stories, which is like been marginalized since the beginning of time. And it just feels sometimes dire and bleak and especially right now. So I've definitely been on this space of like really trying to dissect the past 16 years that I've invested here and and who I am as an individual, as a human in this business, what is my purpose? What am I here to, how am I going to leave this better than I found it? I guess, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in that place right now, which is really challenging to be here, to be an artist and to continue to stick it out, given how, like I said, how challenging everything has been for a while and now feels like it's finally reared its head in a lot of ways, you know? Totally. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I can only hope that we bring it to a head sooner rather than later. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. hoping that SAG will strike and that, you know, it, it really forces us all to sit down and, and say, okay, now that there is no other choice and we don't want to kill a medium, how do we all sit together and find right. some sort of uh, temporal existence and, and, and move forward? And, and that is my hope um, because it, I don't want to be out of work and I don't know any yeah. right now that is like enjoying this, but in many ways it is a lot like COVID because you are reevaluating, right? Like I'm looking at my slate of projects uh, both as a writer and a producer and even as a director, you know, and like looking at what I had coming down the pipeline and realizing like that was going to choke me at some point and like having the moment to sit and reflect and look at uh, what I have committed to. One makes me really passionate about these issues that we're fighting for at the WGA because I realize that I am balancing so many different jobs because of the way that development doesn't pay and the contractual obligations that you have to these shows and development, many which are if come deals that do not uh, help us have a sustainable living, right? I wouldn't have to take on so many projects in the hope that one of them goes if right. be paid in a more like equitable manner for people. I also wouldn't have, I recognize very strongly that I wouldn't have the opportunities that uh, I have to ride out development if I couldn't pay to play. And what I mean by that is that like, had I not made the movie Palm Springs before I started really embarking on this uh, writing journey in a, in a more professional capacity, I wouldn't have the money that I luckily, you know, was able to get from that movie to sit it out for a bit <laughs> So that I could take on all these unpaid projects. And on the surface, it looks like, oh my gosh, Gabby, you're so busy and you have all these amazing projects with these great producers. And I'm like, yeah, but these amazing projects with these great producers, they're not paying my bills really, but they're in a contractual position that is preventing me from getting other paid work. But I have to take on more and more of these because this, the development model is not sustainable and we are not making money. And so I have to take a chance on more things in the hopes that one of them goes so that I will get paid more. And, and that is a way that we root out diverse storytellers, right? Because making a movie like Palm Springs is not a sustainable business model. Like that is not a thing that like, you know, I got very lucky to get to make that movie. And I acknowledge that. And that is not a economic strategy for other right. voices to break through. Well, everybody did, right? And that project at that time, it was like, how much was it sold for? It was like 20 million? It sold it for something crazy. For $22 million. Yeah. yeah. Like when who, you know what I mean? Like no one's buying movies for that amount anyway, these days, even if you have the same exact alchemy, it's just the product of its time. It's like that unicorn lightning in a bottle thing that we talk about. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that you had that, you had that experience and you get to, ride the coattails of that a little bit because you deserve that shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, at least that, like, I know how hard you work, but to sort of back it up, because I, I'm, I get very passionate. And since you're a friend, like I could talk to you forever, but back to you. So you think, okay, maybe I'll go be a lawyer, because that seems like the thing that is, you know, sustainable and easy and not easy, but has like a pathway. At what point do you shift away from that? I mean, you say that sort of destiny, kind of took you there 
talk us through that journey. And because I know you have always sort of been writing, but somehow you got on the producing path first and you came up sort of line producing and sinking your teeth in physical production. And you have this really incredible skill set now that not many people in your position have. So talk us through a little bit about that journey. And at what point you said enough is enough. I'm hanging up this identity and I'm going to take control of my career. I I very clearly remember writing little books as a kid, you know, and like taking a lot of care and like sewing them together so that they, you know, were like my little prized possession. And I remember very clearly like playing with Barbies and making up stories. And then if I had to go to bed, like picking it up from where the story left off and like continuing to tell the story. So that was always like a part of me, but of course realized like, Oh, nobody that I know makes money doing this. So I'm going to be a lawyer. That's what I want to do. That's the thing I can understand and see a pathway to. And then my junior year in college, I had a professor that said to me, you know, Gabby law school's really, really soul sucking. And it's going to take a lot out of you. So if I can give you a piece of advice before you go, I would suggest that you take a summer and just like have fun. And I was so annoyed by that. Like, you know, I I was like, have fun. Like, where do I get to have fun? Like, I have to have three jobs to pay for school. Like most of my friends can go do whatever they want to do. That wasn't my reality. But I tried it and like went to get a job at a music venue and very quickly because I am who I am, you could probably relate to this, found that there were like, there was an internship open at that same place that was like in the law department. So I took that, I took a job in production. (laughs) And like, you know, when there, when I wasn't scheduled to work in production on the weekends, I took a job like working the ticketing, you know, booth that we had there too. And so I had like three jobs at this one place, which was like what I knew what to do. And, uh, and the second day I was there, my boss had like a big heart issue, like heart issues have like defined my life. Other people's heart problems have defined my life. But in this instance, my boss had a a heart issue and I sort of got reshuffled and was told like, Hey, you know, you want to help us like settle some shows at the end of the night. We really need some people to do that. Um, in a couple different states, right? So I did this like mini tour all over sort of settling a bunch of the shows that we had because my venue had just been acquired by Live Nation. So I, you know, suddenly went from having these like three, you know, one job that was supposed to be fun to having these like three jobs that were quickly growing in responsibility. And then I was having to figure out, okay, well, how does a concert business work? How do people get paid? How do I take like what the law, um, you know, all of our deal memos say and apply that to how we're paying people and balancing all these sheets. And at the time, you know, a lot of these shows were settled by hand. So I had like big folders that I brought and um, it's quickly how I started learning about production and like, what does everybody do at these, you know, what is everybody's job? What does it mean to be in a union venue like we had in some of the tri-state area versus like a right to work venue, you know, so I really got into production that way and sort of happened very organically over that summer. I loved it so much that I ended up telling my teachers I would not be coming back next semester and, uh, would need to uh, take, I I dropped my course load and took as few classes as I could and ended up coming to work three days a week. I still lived two hours away in my apartment in in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And so I would drive the two hours to my job every day and do my job and then uh, do whatever classes I could. There was no online class, right? So some of my teachers would just like, let me take the coursework, I would do a lot of it over the weekend and then send it back. And it was a really tough year because everybody was having so much fun. But I felt like I was doing something that I could be proud of. And if I was going to break my parents heart and tell them that I wasn't going to go to law school, like I had decided at that moment, uh, then I better make something of myself, right. And so that, Mm. uh, that was my plan. And and again, because I just felt like I couldn't call myself an artist or a storyteller, I just thought, well, this is a business, right? Like I'm doing a business thing and that's something that they can understand. But the problem is like the more time I spent sort of on tour and with different musicians, the more I realized that they were really just storytellers and they made money like doing art. And that blew my mind. Like I had never met anybody and a lot of them from similar socioeconomic backgrounds to me. 
I had never met any anybody like in my life that was making that happen. And so I started like managing bands for my college and like basically trying to to learn the business from a couple different angles. And, and so music was really my first foray into that. But Live Nation used to do uh, comedy as well. They still do. And one of the clients that we had was uh, Martin Short, and he was doing like a little sort of mini tour before going to Broadway. You know, he was sort of like testing his his one mm-hmm. show. And I got the opportunity to sort of be a part of the touring group that was like putting that together. And then I ended up moving to New York and, and working on that show full time. And that uh, really changed the trajectory of my life because I got to see someone create every day and um, got to be an active part of that process. And and I knew then that I was screwed because that's like all I wanted to do was to write and create and, you know, put it, take something from nothing, like from an idea in your head and like create it into something that people could enjoy. Um, and I don't think I felt like worthy of doing that for a really long time. And so is that kind of what got you more on the producing side of things? You eventually got into line producing and you worked on some really cool projects. And I think we've talked about like so much of this business, and I say this all the time on the podcast, like when you're really good at something and you make people's lives easier because you're good, you're dependable, you're reliable, you go above and beyond, no matter what the rate is, you know, you're just the consummate professional, which every person I know who's an immigrant is like they have to be, like we said, above and beyond. And, and then you add compound that we're women. It's like a whole nother, you know, podcast. But, you know, at what point do you feel like you were like, you know, okay, the, the industry will put you in this box. They'll be like, okay, you're really good at this. Keep doing this. And it's not as easy to walk away because you keep getting jobs after jobs and you get your next job on the job you're on. And if you're not careful, you blink and a decade has passed and you've been doing something that, fulfills you to an extent or fulfills your bank account or fulfills your ego or fulfills whatever that thing is. But it every time it takes you away from the thing you actually want to be doing. I know a lot of people who have lived this experience, I suppose. And so for you, at what point did you really solidify for yourself? Okay, like, I if I don't get off the roller coaster, no one's going to just empower me to do so necessarily, right? You have to create it for yourself. So talk about that transition. I think at first I sort of naively thought, well, I work so hard and people will see that and they will want to give me an opportunity. And what I didn't realize is that for some reason, there's a strange divide in our business that production is production and is not inherently creative and directing and writing is creative and the creative producer is creative, but nobody else. Right. And it feels very exclusive. And I naively thought like, well, I will just penetrate that because I do wear all these hats and what I am doing is inherently creative. Even as a line producer, I am having to understand and dissect the script and take apart, you know, some of these components and make suggestions of how we can continue to keep the integrity of the storytelling while also managing this budget. And I thought that that would make me an asset. And instead, what it did was tell people, no, 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 we have to keep Gabby in this space. And there aren't that many women who are line producers, and there aren't that many Latinas that are line producers. So you know what, we have to keep her in this space. And as I was making bigger and bigger and bigger movies, you know, even and my agent at the time, who I, I love to pieces, and to this day has been the best representative I've ever had, he and I got into a very serious fight, because I was saying like, I want to write and I feel like I'm making all this headway. I'd been taking all these classes. People were starting to notice my writing. I'd been getting into all these programs. And he finally said to me, like, give it up. Like you're not, nobody's going to ever see you as a writer. You don't want to be a writer. Like you are going to make money for your family in this space. Why are you trying to like work so hard against yourself? And we ended up like parting ways by the way, I love him very much. He was still at my, um, because he, this was a very monumental like moment for me in life. And because I think it's the first time I ever said out loud to anybody, uh, because I am a writer, 
And I don't know how to like not be a writer. <laughs> and, you know, the big shift happened for me really when a couple times, I mean, when I made the whiplash short, you know, I had made it for $25,000 and like mostly had to figure a lot of that out myself, like the physical producing part of it. And, you know, when it came time for people to like go on stage at Sundance and get awards and like, you know, like I wasn't invited to be a part of that. And it felt like such a slap in the face because I mean, forget that I'm the only person of color that was like heading up that, um, you know, that was heading up production, any part of the movie, really. But in addition to that, you know, it, it was frustrating to feel like invisible, like my contributions were not important, valid or creative. And that was really hard. And after that, I remember thinking, like, never again. And of course, it took me many years to make that a reality because of what you keep saying, like jobs keep coming, just like my bills keep coming. And the higher profile, you know, jobs you do, the more people want to keep you in that box. And eventually, after I made Palm Springs, my husband was like, you must be so excited. And I was like, I just started crying. I like burst into tears. And I was like, I'm so miserable because now I know that what's going to happen is that I'm going to get a million calls about being an executive producer who also line produces for bigger and bigger movies. And if I do not get out now, I will never get to do what I really want to do. And another movie came to me. It was a big studio movie. It was more money than I'd ever gotten paid in my life. I got offered the job and I said to my agent, I, I cannot do this job. And I said to my husband, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to go to the Disney program for what was then like 500 dollars a week, you know, after all of my taxes. And, uh, and I'm going to do that instead and really give this writing thing a shot. And people thought I was insane. Like they were like, for, my agent couldn't believe it. He was like, I'm sorry, you're going to leave a job that's going to pay you like $12,000 a week or whatever to go make $500 a week for the shot at maybe perhaps one day getting to write an episode of TV, like, please. And so he and I parted ways. Um, he was just at a screening of my movie and we had a lovely conversation. I love him so much. But is this for Legally Brown? Yeah. And my husband, too, like had to take a big chance and say, like, oh, OK, I guess I guess like let's try to have you go figure this out. And, and that was a big I mean, that the whiplash short was the first like big like realization that I was getting put in a box. And then I think the success of Palm Springs made me realize I will never get out of the golden handcuffs. And I know people may think that that's like, oh, boohoo, you know, like you got to do this job where you get paid really, really well. But for me, being a line producer was a thankless job that... Well, for anybody, I don't know anyone who'd be like, uh, you know... That's what I think, right? But like... And also, here, here's my theory, is that if if line producers were actually treated with so much more respect... And as a true part of the creative process and as a collaborator, not just during the months when they matter, but after the fact and they were celebrated, I think we would see so many more people stick to that job and feel pride in doing that work. But totally. But and you get so burned out. And I had two small children, right? And it was getting to the I was gonna ask, yeah, if you if you already had entered motherhood at that point. So. I could tell that the tide had turned in my line producing when people started offering me money for childcare to make sure that I could take care of my kids. Make sure I could be away from my kids while I was making movies, like in Georgia and New York and LA. And so I knew that I was important enough that they would pay extra money to take care of that, but that I was not important enough to be given a better title, even when sometimes I was the only producer on set for many weeks at a time dealing with insane requests and, you know, temperamental talent and, you know, keeping it all together. And even investors, you know, like I, I definitely did work as a lot of line producers do that are outside of your immediate scope. And even then making sure that I was given the, credit of executive producer was like a fight. And even then, like, God forbid, I would ask for a creative producing credit when sometimes like I was with the movie during development, like I would make story changes, suggestions that, you know, would benefit the budget, obviously, but that would keep the integrity of the story intact. 
a lot of times for the betterment of the script. And that was like, it would never be acknowledged. And so that separation of church and state, a lot of times, like within our business, it just became very hurtful and detrimental for me. And I just personally couldn't do it. I know a lot of line producers that like to stay in their lane and do not want to Mm -hmm. deal with any of the other things, but I feel like do, you should be compensated for that. Yeah. Acknowledged. Do you feel like at the time, though, if you could have said, okay, well, I guess I won't lie and produce other people's work, I'll go produce my own work, I'll go find it, maybe when you weren't quite at the space where you felt confident in your writing, but to go pursue more of that independent route, right, find scripts that you could then capital P produce, and and still like put all that physical and, and line producing skill set to, to use to be a good creative collaborator to a writer director or whatever did that thought ever cross your mind or did you also feel like that pathway would keep you in this handcuff sort of situation because it would still deter you away from creating your own work I found that people and investors like did not value my work as a line producer to the same degree that they would value somebody's title with as producer with a capital P who maybe never set foot on set. And that was really frustrating for me because I would put together, I would find a script, I'd put together a movie, I would put great cast around it. And still, you know, bond companies and, uh, you know, investors and studios alike would say, we love this project, you need to get another partner that has more capital P producing experience uh, with you. And that became a really frustrating experience for me because it was like, I have like over a decade of experience of putting together, you know, I figured out the financing with the attorney to like satisfy your client before. Like, I don't understand why uh, I am not good enough. And I really internalized that for a long time of like, well, I guess I am just not good enough. And eventually would find partners that would say, okay, I'll do it, but I want this huge piece that didn't make sense for whatever financing I was putting together. Um, Or they just wouldn't make it a priority because of course they have all their own projects that are a priority and just finding that magic is really complicated. So eventually, um, you know, I I did produce Capital P a couple projects. One of them was Phantom Halo with Antonio Bogdanovich, but you know, it, it was tough and um, just not, not the projects that I wanted to be working on. So eventually I just said, well, I guess I just have to go and create them from scratch. And so I did that. And that was around the time that you opted again for the Disney program, writers program. And then once you started with those programs, because you you did a couple of them, right? How long did it take until you felt like, how many years was that journey? How were you sustaining yourself in the meantime? And at what point did you feel like, okay, like I you're never fully ready. And especially with the work, there's always more to do right with the script. But did you feel confident enough to go? I have found I've tapped into something that I feel confident sharing with my network of people, what however that looked like for you? Yeah, I like a few things sort of collided. I mean, the first program I did was the Fox writers program in 2015. And a lot of my classmates from there are now, you know, showrunners. But I at the time was even having a hard time, like making it to class. I had like a sister that was, I mean, I don't want to tell her story, but she was, you know, going through a lot and I was having to um, go back and forth uh, to help her. She was sort of in my care as a teenager. And then in addition to that, my daughter of all things had this very life-threatening heart condition and we didn't know if she was going to make it. And, you know, I just keep thinking, back to, you know, my mom's sort of uh, lie to get me out of the country. And I felt like I was somehow like paying for that now. And, wow. you know, it, it was a really difficult time. And, and I remember this like white woman producer just being like, you know, you just seem like you're not taking this seriously. And I just wanted to say like, my God, <laughs> I um, have to support my family. My husband was out of work. My sister was going through all of these things. Like I was barely keeping it together. I was pregnant with this child that possibly wasn't going to survive. Like I'm sorry, the human element of that was just like not in it. And and it was really difficult. And years later, I ran into her and she was like, I really wish you would have told us these 
these things. And I, and I just wanted to say, well, you know, like it's no one's business. Like the, the, the lack of humanity and compassion for other people and to understand what someone else is going through, especially women and people of color who are, uh, you know, it's like, it's beyond anyone's imagination, what experiences these the, we have had or other people have had. And to think that you could possibly know their story or understand it, even if you told her, like, it's, yeah. it's none of anyone's business. And I think we're, we're, I think that's the thing that I'm I'm struggling with is I feel like a bit of our humanity in this business has been lost. And instead of it being really solidified post-pandemic of like all the things we thought that that time was going to teach us as a humankind of people who have chosen to be in this business telling stories, I feel like it's been the opposite in many ways. It's made people, it's broken people. I don't know. I feel like something is fundamentally broken. And that story, even though it was in 2013 or whatever, like, I just hear so many of those kinds of stories today still, you know, it really difficult, but, uh, but that really made my journey sort of take a step back and then, you know, taking care of my daughter and and figuring out, um, you know, what we were going to do to sort of take care of her and move forward. Um, I just, at that time was like, I guess I'm just going to be a line producer and I'm going to make myself happy with that because it is a noble and like good profession. And, and that I'm really good at it. And that's what I'm going to do. And, and then I just couldn't stop writing. And, you know, my husband would point out to me, like, every chance that you have, like, you wake up early to write, like, what are you, what are you writing towards? And I, and I couldn't figure it out. And, and when I had the opportunity to do this Disney thing, and I took it, and thank God I have an understanding partner who, you know, sort of took that leap with me and took on a lot of added responsibility to, to do that. But very quickly, I got staffed on a million little things and wrote a few episodes. And and that sort of made me realize, like, I, I think I'm on to something here. And then once that happened, like once I bet on myself like that, my whole life changed because everything started clicking into place. Like I would, um, you know, meet the right people. And it was almost like once I stopped denying myself, like the pleasure of this part of myself, that is still a lot of work, you know, I, I started making advancements very quickly. And and that's what led to in 2020 to the program. I got staffed. I, I think I started it in like January of that year. And, you know, by March I was staffed. And then I was pitching 15 candles to Tanya Sriracho, I think, um, you know, by that summer. And so it, it all sort of happened very quickly. But, you know, it's been a multi-year process where in 2023, the show hasn't come out yet. So uh, I don't know, you know, by whose standards that is success. But for me, that opened so many doors to set up and show like that. It's huge. I mean, I think even, I don't know exactly what the time was like for you from 2013 to 2020, right? Those seven years where you were still writing, line producing until it seems like this experience of getting staffed, which certainly came at having reps and having obviously the right connections, which it wasn't like you were just doing a budget somewhere in a corner and someone was like, Hey, Abby, we want to be staffed on this show. You know, <laughs> like, what are you up to next summer? But then, yeah, to, it's like, the thing is it, it seems to, when you talk about, when you tell the story, it seems to have happened very quickly. Right. But it's actually been years, decades in the making because you weren't just like picked up a pen in 2020. You had been developing this muscle and this skill set for many years. So that taking a, a leap of faith and gambling on yourself wasn't, it was like, what is it? My dad always says this. It's like a calculated risk. Yeah. It wasn't just jumping off the fence because like, I think again, as immigrants, like you have to take these calculated risks. You can't just like throw caution to the wind and go, let's just YOLO and see what happens. There's again, too much writing. And especially when you now have a family and you have all these responsibilities. And, and, and if Palm Springs had not sold the way that it sold, I think like things would have gone a little differently for me. Yeah. I also you know, by the way, after a million little things, I had to get a job, like blind producing job. And I did that, you know, in between and I and people thought I was crazy, right? Because they're like, what, you just set up like these two shows, another one didn't end up going. But, 
you set up these two shows with these like two major stars at, at two major networks. Like, what are you talking about? And I had to explain to them that like only one of those was paid and I wouldn't be getting paid for a few months while we worked out the deal. And in the meantime, I had been writing full time on a staff making only 500 and some dollars a week. So like our savings were non-existent. And my husband at the time was out of a job as well. And so we were barely getting by. And yeah, I had to go take a line producing job, which in many ways felt like a step back. But now the step back for me, because I didn't want to like go back to line producing full time. And I knew this was like a gateway drug for me seeing like how much. <laughs> money I could make like the difference. But then once we I, I took that job, I did that job, I was very grateful for that job. And then I moved on uh, and went back to writing full time. And luckily, since the end of 2020, that's all I've been doing. You figured out a formula that works for you. And I applaud you because it's like, obviously, knowing you and having your story now documented on this podcast, it's like it's been a really windy road to get there. But I think it's such the the theme of like, when you tap into your truth and you really align with what your goals are in this life and you don't let other people's ideas of who you should be because it sounds crazy or because it benefits someone else for you to stay in your lane, when you don't feel bogged down by those things, and again, it's not like a switch, it's not easy, like all of these things are a process, right? I think it's like what you said, things really start to fall into alignment. And I always think like, you know, all of this is hard. So if you're going to try for such a hard industry, you might as well go do the thing you actually want to be doing <laughs> because none of it is guaranteed for any of us, you know? No, you pick your hard. Like it's also hard to watch other people succeed in places where, you know, when you started off in the same place, um, you know, I go back to my Fox class of 2014, where like so many of them are showrunners, and we were all in the same place there. And the difference is like, they stuck it out and slogged it out in um, writing, like not making any money and, you know, really believing in themselves and betting on themselves. And yeah. I, it felt like to me, I didn't have that luxury. But also I chose other things, you know, and I stand behind those choices because they were right for me at the time. Yeah. But it, it also put me further and further away from what I wanted to be doing. But now, you know, and then I started teaching to make money in between as well uh, as I was developing. And now the more pilots that I've sold and the more things that I'm setting up uh, and, and features that I've, you know, been lucky enough to write, the more that I realize, like, yeah, I, I wish that more women, especially women of color, were taught to bet on themselves earlier because I was a very good line producer. I could still be a very good line producer. It is also okay to accept that I am a good writer and that I work very hard at that. And I think it's hard, even as I say it now, it's like hard to claim that about yourself because you feel like I feel like I'm being, you know, somehow stuck up or weird about it. But but why, you know, and it is because we put artistry in this like unattainable right. box that's how, you know, because I didn't study at these prestigious schools and, you know, I didn't have the background that other people had that somehow my experience is less valuable. And I'm actively trying to reject that narrative in a lot of therapy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's the work. And I think talking about it sharing it with others. That's how we empower other women to really hear this message and hopefully help them figure this out a couple of years earlier. I mean, I think like to my own path, you know, like I said, it's been a really big season of transition for me the last few months. And so I've been doing a lot of reflecting on a lot of things that have gotten either decisions that I made or decisions that were made for me and certain things that have now positioned me where I am. And I feel like I'm at this really interesting place of injunction of like where I go next, I think is going to be how I spend the next 20 years of my time in this business. And I'm really mindful about what that looks like, because to your point, it's so easy to like slide back into just line producing or just taking jobs or just doing production just to make a buck and make a paycheck, which sometimes you have to, to survive. And there's no shade, no tea in that. It's like, it really is doing what you need to. But at the end of the day, what is all that for if you're not living your truth, you know? And, and no shade to line producers, right? Like I know people who, 
love it and live for it. And that is the thing that they want to do and, and more power to them because it is a really hard, often thankless job where everybody's working against them when really you're trying to like help everybody. Right. Absolutely. But as you're saying, like you have to know yourself and your truth. And if that is not who you are, then in any job, you're, you know, a really great grip and you feel like you should be a designer, like, I hope that they people will come to that realization earlier that they deserve to be artists too, in whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anything that you feel like you had to consciously sort of unlearn about how you viewed storytelling when you made that shift from line producing to full-time writing? Yeah, it's so interesting. A lot of people ask me this question, and, and I think writers are sort of taught like, well, don't, you know, write with a budget in mind because they think that that's very limiting. And I also at first, like had always been told that narrative, right? Like don't take into account budget. Don't, you know, by seasoned screenwriters. And I found that for me personally, like I cannot unknow the things that I know and giving myself that is actually not freeing. It's constricting because then I'm frozen and don't know what to do. And so now I have just accepted that I create with a general idea of budget in mind and that that is who I am and that that is not a hindrance and is not going to make me create outside, you know, the lines that I, that I should be creating. And that is an asset to me. And, and, and I, I have had to unlearn that, that somehow, my knowledge of budgets is a deterrence because that's what I have been told for the past decade, right? That, you know, people who write with a budget in mind, they're just limiting the the creative process. And, and I think that the creative process is all about boundaries and you just, it's like which boundaries you're putting around yourself so that you can create in that sandbox. And so I've just stopped punishing myself for um, creating with that in mind. It's interesting because the thing that perhaps can be perceived as a negative or a setback, I think is going to be the thing that makes you leaps and bounds ahead in your own artistry from other people, because that's your artistry. Like you said, like all those years of line producing is inherently creative. It inherently makes you a better writer on a subconscious level because you're constantly having to think about creative solutions to real problems that have finite solutions for whatever reasons. And I, I really strongly believe that having that lens and understanding execution of what it means to have something on a script on a page and then actually the cost and the reality of putting that together. I actually find that really freeing because that means that you can zig and zag much faster than most people because you're not precious about certain things because you understand inherently that that's not really what that scene is about, right? Or that where it takes place maybe isn't this huge thing. However, you also know when to fight for the things that really do matter and where you do need to hold your line. And I I think that if you are now stepping into, as you are stepping into a a directing role, it's like, that's what we want with somebody with a vision who's going to guide the rest of the team to have a point of view. Otherwise, what's the point? So I think it's actually your superpower, you know, and I think reframing it, which I know you're doing and have done, is important because I that's your that's been your journey and it is inherently yours it is inherently your story and that's what makes you unique and talented in the ways that you are and like as someone who has read your work and I have the privilege of saying this not like as a theoretical but as a fact you know I'm I'm just excited for you I know it's like a like I said a challenging time and there's it feels like dark clouds over overhead at least for me <laughs> it feels very much like that in all of the despair that I feel I still feel optimism, you know, because if people like you and me, if women like you and me throw in the towel and leave, then it's it's only more dire, like what the future of this business looks like and the kinds of stories that we get to tell and who we get to help by the stories that we tell from our own stories to the creative juices you, you put into like adapting 16 Candles. Like, I'm so excited to see that and how it's going to turn out, you know? Thank you. Me yeah. too. I'm to see that too. And I'm, I'm excited for, you know, a couple other projects that are not ready to be announced yet, but that, you know, I've been moving along and sort of had to stall with, with this. And um, I think for me, the next chapter looks like 
acceptance. And so I'm, I'm also excited for the future. Like I'm trying to accept that I cannot do everything. I'm trying to accept that I need other people and that I need help from other creatives. I am trying to accept that it, I am not a failure because I cannot do everything. Mm. And I want to have a work-life balance that doesn't make me a failure. And these are things that I being on the picket lines actually is actively helping me feel less alone about because you realize that while there are still people that subscribe to this, like, if you're not in pain, you know, it's not good enough, uh, sort of mentality. There are so many other people who are like, if you cannot have a schedule that allows your staff to have a life that allows you to also have a life, maybe you're not doing it right. And I'm finding more and more of those like-minded people. So, so like you say, there are start, like dark storm clouds on the horizon right now, but I also see beyond that, uh, the more I go picketing and I encourage anybody, you know, to go spend some time doing it because you really do just strike up these great conversations with people and their philosophy on show running and on uh, just being a creative human in the world. And you realize that there are people who have different managerial aspirations. And I am excited for us to all test the status quo right now. Yeah, I haven't been to the actual picket lines, but I've been to a few events, rallies with all the unions. And it's for all the despair there is, it is like a really wonderful, warm feeling to see how many people are coming together in a way that we haven't seen before with a lot of the unions binding together and linking arms for the first time really in the history of the unions. I speak of like SAG and the Teamsters and DGA and WGA, like collectively being in the front lines of an issue that impacts us all versus it being like, well, now it's my turn and good luck on your deal and we'll, good luck with what you get and we'll just do our thing over here, you know? Hopefully this is setting a new precedent for how we collectively as an industry are making sure that what I think is is the middle class of Hollywood can be here and can thrive because that really is kind of what it feels like in a lot of ways if this doesn't get resolved you, you you just can't have a sustainable livelihood for so many people beyond the writers. And that's why this is, again, paramount. And the whole world is watching. I mean, I talked to family in Brazil who are like checking in on me and being like, hey, I'm seeing the news over here about the strike. Like, what's going on, you know? And I think that's wonderful. I think that's a wonderful conversation starter. And it forces other industries to look at issues within their own specific trade, you know? So like, there's, there's always positives. And for all the differences, you know, with as we're talking about, you know, being immigrants and, and having immigrant parents, you know, my mom is very much like work, work, work. That is the thing that you need to focus on, um, you know, not traditionally like pro strike gal. But in talking to her about all these things, I realized that when she was in high school, she made her school go on strike. And as we were talking <laughs> about the reasons for why she did that and what she was protesting. And, and it was like she wanted, you know, support for people who, you know, couldn't read and, and these things. We realized that in our immigrant blood, there is this, uh, even though there is this like need to assimilate and want to like not rock the boat, there's also a part of you that is inherently rebellious. Because if there wasn't, you wouldn't have made the trek. If you were not inherently rebellious, you would not have taken this calculated risk. And so I think we found this very bonding experience and the need to, in the desire to want something better for the next generation. Um, and as different as we are, I think we really bonded over that. I love that. Well, I have one final question before we move on to the lightning round, which are these five fun questions just to take us out. And is there anything you wish you knew about the entertainment industry when you were first starting out that maybe would have changed the course of how you navigated it? Something you would tell yourself, your younger self? Yeah, I wish that I inherently understood that it is a marathon and not a sprint. I wish I wouldn't have been so quick and desperate to like prove myself somehow. And those are like inherent things about my personality at the time. And I don't know that I that I could have changed those things if I wanted to. But uh, I, I wish that I would have known that like I am enough and that doing what I'm doing is enough and that 
all of that work and all of those perceived detours uh, would now, you know, they're such huge help to me. And I, and I wish I would have been uh, in not so much of a hurry to have people accept me as a writer. I wish that I would have just accepted myself as a creative and not been like uh, always fighting that inner like battle. Like had I just accepted it, I think I I would have had an easier time in my own relationships, like not beating myself up or the people around me. Same. I mean, I feel like I'm looking into a mirror, you know, hearing your story. (laughs) So it's, I, yes. So that is. That's why we bonded so quickly in that uh, UTA thing that we went to because like, oh my God, you are just like me. Like we both are. and, And, and I'll tell you that the one thing that pisses me off so much about people who interact with us that I really bonded with you over was this notion that people think like, oh, but you are not creative. And now somehow, because I'm a writer and I've been anointed a writer by like selling something. Oh, now I'm creative. It's not now. I've been creative for decades. And that is the thing, you know, whenever I hear somebody describe someone as like, oh, but they're not on the creative side, I inherently sort of recoil because I think to myself, like, I hope that's how they describe themselves. Because if it's not, I I now think a little differently of you who have said that. Yeah, there's a judgment that comes with it. And there's a, again, I feel like there's this like white collar, blue collar thing where the white collar people of Hollywood are the ones that get to be creative and get to be, go from writing to acting and to directing. And it's fine and it's beautiful and it's creative, but everybody else is just there to like uplift these people and be operations to make their dreams and their creativity happen, but that they're not, again, inherently part of that process in a meaningful way. And also like, I resent the notion that anyone who leaves their home to move to LA, New York, or any of these big markets to pursue this industry has a passion for storytelling, and they are a storyteller at heart. And if their way of contributing to the process is by being a grip or by being an art department coordinator or whatever that is, that is great. And it's what got them in the game. They're creative. Unless you like came up in the business of grips or like I have a good friend who's a transpo captain and his dad was like owns trucks in the business and like, you know, the 60s, like fine, maybe he's not inherently creative and he was like, inherited this business but like most people who leave everything behind in pursuit of this like they are inherently creative they are storytellers at heart but they they find their lane because it, not everybody has th- this desire that maybe you and I have and that's okay I think it's like knowing your truth and knowing your place I feel like that's where as humans we struggle so much to I really identify this and I I'm jealous of people that figure this out early on because I feel like then they're on their path, you know, but everybody's, everybody's on their path. So it's like, you know, pointless to be in that mode of comparison, but I know we all fall prey to it. So yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been so lovely. Um, I will get us into the lightning round. I'm realizing that we're a few minutes over. Are you okay to continue? Okay, yeah, I have to go to my picketing station pretty quickly, but let's do it. So these are quick questions. Um, So this is the lightning round. Okay, so the first question is, what's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Selena's Como La Flor. What's the latest piece of art that moved you? A book, a film, a show, etc. I recently read a book called The Poison Keeper by a woman named Deborah Swift. And it is about the woman who created poison. And it just profoundly made me ask questions about women's evolution in society and how I have contributed to my own demise at times. And I will say succession has deeply moved me in ways I wasn't expecting. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Meditation helps (laughs) ease. I know that's boring, but meditation and candles. It's not boring if it's what works. Okay. What is one of the most worthwhile investments that you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. I have invested a lot of time in reading books about craft. And some of them are very dry and boring. And even the ones that have been bad have all helped me figure something out about myself, not just writing. And that has, has been lovely. 
Okay, this is the final question. It's a fun question. It's borrowing from inside the actor studio. The question that he asked at the very end, inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot, which is, if God exists, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? It was time. That's it. It was time. <laughs> I hope I'm so long and get to do so much that in the end, it was just time. Yeah. I didn't expect to get emotional about that question. I need to figure out if I should keep this question in because I feel like it always ends on like a very emotional and tender note. But like, then I'm like, and that's the time. Gotta go. You know, it's like super awkward transition. So open to feedback. No, it's great. But uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing that he always says is what's your favorite curse word, right? Okay, maybe I need to switch it up. I need to like revamp some stuff. But uh But no, thank you for going there. I like to create a space just for our stories to be documented. Um, It means so much to me. It helps me. It helps people listening navigate their own journeys and their own crises in this business. And so I'm really grateful. Thank you for taking the time and for going there with me. Of course. Thank you for making space. I really appreciate it. Of course. Of course. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.